cemetery should be forever, right? That's the whole idea. An eternal resting place. But certainly, any scholar of cemeteries, and indeed, even if you have just observed cemeteries at the side of the road, you know that this is far from the reality. Now, lots of cemeteries thought that they had ideas that would help ensure that cemeteries lasted forever. But the question is, do things ever last forever? And if they don't, why don't they? What have we learned over hundreds of thousands of years about keeping things in place? Certainly, most of us encounter cemeteries that often aren't even a century old, that are in really bad shape. What is it about the nature of cemeteries that makes preservation so challenging? I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. Now, I am not a preservationist. I'm going to say that again. I am not a preservationist. Not that I'm not an advocate for preservation. Not that I don't believe in preservation. But I, in and of myself, am not a historic preservationist. Now, that's somewhat of a misnomer considering I work in the field of historic preservation. But at the end of the day, I consider myself an architectural historian. I don't know anything about materials conservation. I wouldn't know the first thing about mixing mortar or epoxy. I haven't assembled a gravestone, ever. And I say that all because there are many, many talented people out there that specialize in just that. I'm not a mason. I don't know all that much about stone outside of an academic purpose. I am much more familiar with the bylaws and the laying out of cemeteries the material culture of it, than I am in how to preserve that material culture. But, in a way, I think that actually makes me ideal for this. At first, I thought about bringing on any number of the materials preservationists that I am familiar with, and I know quite a few. People who know about all those things. People that can take headstones apart and put them back together. People who understand mortar and epoxy people who are doing the hands-on preservation. But then I thought about it, and I realized that quite often the people who are doing this work aren't professionals. They're the weekend warriors. They're the dedicated descendants. And when I talk about preservation challenges, I want to talk about it in a more holistic way, about things that everyone encounters and why they continue to be issues. Now, a friendly reminder. The idea of a permanent resting place is a very American idea. In almost every other country, burial places are not considered to be permanent, at least for the overwhelming majority of the population. Most places you rent your grave, usually for a period of about seven to nine years. After that point, you have decomposed sufficiently because embalming also not common everywhere in the world. Once you have decomposed sufficiently that you are down to close to skeletal remains, then your bones are generally put in some sort of charnel house. Often it is just a pit underneath where the tombs are. At that point, you don't have individual burial. This is very common in almost everywhere but the United States. I always bring up the example of New Orleans because New Orleans is one of the few places in the United States where they still do practice this in a lot of their cemeteries. 
However, setting that aside, the assumption, at least since the late 18th century, when the New Haven burial ground moved to the New Grove Street Cemetery, there has been a presumption that burial places are eternal. And that's where the problems began. Now, I made a list of the top 10 preservation challenges that I see. Some are general, some are more specific. I'll try to go into as much detail as I can about exactly what I mean by these ideas. Now, I don't claim to have the answer to all of these. In fact, I don't have the answer to most of them. But hopefully this will give you some insight into why they are challenges, why they stand in the way of long-term preservation of cemeteries, and most importantly, why they impact all cemeteries, not just a select few. So, let's start with a big one. Funding. Money. If I had to boil most preservation problems down, they all come down to this. If you've listened to some of the discussions I've had, specifically the conversation that I had with Sam Beetler down in Savannah, cemeteries are a losing proposition. In terms of reward for investment, they really don't get you there. Don't get into the cemetery business expecting to make a lot of money. And the reason for this is you actually have a very limited potential. You are selling real estate, yes, but lots of the other things that make real estate valuable, development rights, taxation, well, none of these really apply to cemeteries. So it's a one-and-done proposition. You're not going to continue to get money from lot sales. And when you run out of lots to sell, you're not going to get money from just about anything. And this is a problem. It means that cemeteries, by definition, have a finite value. But with that finite value comes an essentially infinite cost maintenance. So even though you don't have any more plots to sell, which bring in new income, you still have operating expenses. You're not charging HOA fees like you would at a condominium. So how are you going to make your money? People at this point own. They own their piece of land. But the cemetery itself, if it's not a joint stockholder corporation, if it doesn't have a perpetual care fund, how are you going to keep up with the basic needs of the cemetery? It's a good question. Now, beyond that, when you have unexpected expenses, where is that money going to come from? Not just keeping the lights on, but long-term maintenance. To my knowledge, most people, and I don't know about your family, they don't buy insurance for their cemetery plot. It's not like your homeowner's policy, where you are paying money into this for long-term maintenance. It's funny, I can remember a visit that I made to Southview Cemetery here in Atlanta with a group of people, and I was having a discussion with a person who was asking basically how cemeteries worked. And as I explained it, he eventually said to me, well, then why would anybody ever want to own a cemetery? It sounds like a terrible investment. And arguably it is. If you set aside the moral and the social obligations about safely disposing of the dead, it's really not a great proposition. 
Now, let's move to preservation challenge number two, general maintenance. This one goes hand in hand with the first. Most cemeteries, their number one cost is not burial. It is not monuments. It is not any of those things. It is getting the grass mown. And when you get requests from people for cemetery maintenance, nine times out of ten, they want to have somebody mow the grass. It sounds like a horrible thing to say, but when general maintenance gets neglected, and yes, it is usually the first thing to go because it's expensive, well, then preservation becomes a lot harder because it's a physical fact of actually getting to the headstones to maintain them. Being able to open up the ground for burials for contracts that you have. Access for families who are coming to visit loved ones. So general maintenance is a huge challenge. And you can look at many cemeteries that even though they are trying to keep their gates open, it's a huge undertaking. Because sometimes these cemeteries can run to hundreds of acres. This is not just like keeping your yard mowed. And anybody that owns a house will tell you having to mow the grass once a week can be kind of a pain. And paying somebody else to do it, even if it's just a kid in the neighborhood, is not always a cheap proposition. The same thing goes for roads. Keeping what is often miles and miles and miles of roads within a cemetery maintained is not cheap. The challenges of upkeep and maintenance, if you can get them done, make preservation easier. If you can't get them done, they become a huge additional obstacle. Now, if we're having problems with money, if we're having problems with general maintenance, then the third one is going to be a huge problem. And this is nature. Acts of God, if you will. Because the thing is, it's hard enough to do the general everyday maintenance, the mowing the grass, the maintaining of the roads. But what happens when you, again, have unexpected expenses? Now, you might think that acts of God are not usually a huge thing. But again, I go back to that idea of having insurance to deal with these type of things. If there is a tornado, if there is a hurricane, if there's a bad storm that drops a massive tree limb on the top of your house, that breaks the windshield on your car, you have a way to fix those things. You have insurance exactly for those things. Now, that's not to say that cemeteries don't have liability insurance. Most of them do. But when you start to compound those things, when you have disaster conditions, things get really touchy really quickly. And you would be surprised at how many claims are actually filed through FEMA for assistance in trying to bring cemeteries back when natural disasters hit. I had a coworker who spent weeks in southern Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina just trying to keep things together and do basic maintenance to try to prevent cemeteries from deteriorating further. Here in Oakland, here in Atlanta at Oakland Cemetery back in 2008, the cemetery took a direct hit from an F2 tornado. In a matter of minutes, and it's interesting because I have read interviews with the cemetery staff that were there when the tornado actually hit. What happened was within a matter of minutes, you have a million dollars worth of damage. Loss of hundreds of trees. Somewhere around 100 trees that produced enough wood to fill 70 large dump trucks. 
300 stones damaged. It took two years for them to come back from that. And that's with dozens of volunteers. That's with lots of money spent. That's with emergency assistance. Oakland's a well-funded cemetery. They have an endowment far more than a million dollars every year. They have a staff of almost 30. They can come back from that. How do small cemeteries come back from that? If they lose one tree in a bad storm, do they have a couple thousand dollars to bring in a tree service to cut that up and haul it out of there? Do they have volunteers who are willing to bring their chainsaws out to cut that tree up? Or is that tree now there? Is that fallen tree, which may have crushed headstones, going to stay there forever? There are many cemeteries who experience a single natural disaster and never come back from it. And that's not to speak of just the physical parts of it, but think about destroying records. How do fires, floods, all of these things in an age before digitization? How many cemeteries have lost their records? And now preservation and maintenance are a huge challenge because they don't know who's buried where. They don't know what's where. They don't even know if they have all of the land that they thought they had to sell in the case of active cemeteries. These acts of nature, acts of God, can be hugely problematic. Going hand in hand, one of the other challenges is erosion. And this is a specific one, and I brought this up because it's something I don't think that necessarily gets talked about enough. And erosion, it's interesting. I was kind of curious, and so I looked at probably 25 different articles of examples of erosion in cemeteries. And at first I was like, well, it's only in certain places, right? It's only on coastal areas. It's only affecting cemeteries by the ocean. And what I quickly found was that that's not true. That there are widespread preservation issues associated with erosion just about everywhere. Yes, a lot of these are in places like Maine or Cape Hatteras, coastal barrier islands even here in Georgia. Absolutely. And in some cases, there have to be emergency procedures where people step in, where they put in riprap or they put in different erosion control measures. But this is also a huge issue in cemeteries in places that you wouldn't think of. One of the things that's lovely about the rural cemetery movement is that they have these undulating hills and these beautiful natural landscapes. Well, that's also not always great, particularly when you're delving into that hillside and you're opening it up for burials. You can, over time, just through the natural progression of things, through the freeze-thaw cycle, through year after year of rain and storms, start to have issues with erosion. Also, when you have areas that are less than desirable, for example, African-American cemeteries that are heavily prone to flooding, very common across the United States. What happens when erosion starts to further damage the burial ground itself? What happens when you have burial grounds that are placed in undesirable locations, say next to a landfill or something that's going to increase the amount of erosion? Very quickly, you can have bodies that are exposed. 
This even happened at Hart Island, the potter's field for the city of New York, where they had remains that were washing into the bay. So when you have these type of problems, you have to start thinking about this. Because what happens is, is once erosion starts, it happens fast. And so you have both human remains and you have monuments that are quickly lost. So while I wouldn't really qualify erosion as a natural disaster, it's certainly something to think about. And it's something I think that is going to become increasingly common as climate change continues, as we have worldwide sea levels rising, as we have more and more extreme weather, both natural disasters and erosion are going to become a bigger problem in cemeteries and are going to be a huge preservation challenge in the future. This is also a good place to bring up water. Now, I can remember taking a preservation class in graduate school, and I joked around at one point that the class should have just been called Water, Our Worst Enemy. Because it doesn't matter what building material you use, whether you are using wood, stone, brick, concrete, metal, glass, with the exception of maybe glass, but even glass, yes, water destroys them all. It might be next week, it might be 100 years from now, but water is the great unifying enemy of building materials. Now, this has become further compounded in the 20th and 21st century by the changing atmospheric conditions on Earth, where pollution has slowly over time turned rainwater from being mostly neutral to mostly acidic. So so-called so acid rain, which has a high concentration of sulfuric acid in it, actually accelerates and intensifies the damage that can be done by water. Now, in cemeteries, you have the major building materials are going to be stone, either marble, granite, or slate, and in some cases, metal. Bronze is very popular, particularly in Memorial Park cemeteries. Now, water can be problematic in a number of ways. First of all, surface damage. So whether it's erosion from water pooling over time, whether it's increased biological growth from damp conditions, is flooding a common occurrence in the cemetery? Or lastly, stone is porous. We tend to think of stone as being super solid, but that's really not accurate. Stone absorbs a lot of moisture, and you can certainly see this from condensation. I always used to think about it, you know, where I grew up, um, the highways were all blasted through. So they blasted through the sheets of solid granite in New England, and when you would drive along the highway, you could see that you were essentially driving through a valley that had been blasted out with dynamite. And they took all of the stone and they actually dumped it off the coast and they made the jetties off the beaches. But that stone is not impervious. And you would see water leaking out of the stone coming out through the tiny cracks. And the same thing happens with stone in cemeteries. Just because it's cut stone doesn't mean it's completely impervious. It's certainly not. Now, sometimes a lot of water gets in there, water freezes and expands, and it can crack stone. Over time, water definitely causes a lot of damage. When you compound it with the pollution factor, and when you start talking about acid rain, it becomes even worse. Most of the problems that we see in cemeteries, most of the damage that you see to stones is actually caused by water. That's not to say that there aren't tree limbs that fall on headstones and crush them. 
That's not to say that there's not a lot of other things. But cracks from freeze-thaw, water getting into stone, water wearing down the surface of stone, either physically through erosion or chemically through the process that happens where you have sugaring on the surface of things. Whatever it is, water is the major factor that damages most headstones. It's something that I don't think that we talk about enough. People assume it's other things, but at the end of the day, it's mostly water. Now, sometimes it's not water, which brings up the next really big issue, and that's vandalism. Vandalism is terrifying in a number of senses. First of all, it's mindless, most often. Second of all, the amount in terms of dollar amount and physical amount of damage that can be done through vandalism, it grows very quickly. I used to do a regular feature on the podcast Instagram. Um, I called it Mugshot Monday, where I put up pictures of people who committed cemetery vandalism, which was maybe a little bit unsporting of me. But at the end of the day, they're really jerks. Um, what I did eventually figure out, though, was it was mostly either kids or people who were impaired in some way, whether it was through mental illness, drug use, other things. Vandalism takes a lot of forms. The most common is just tipping over headstones. This is surprisingly easy. Headstones are very heavy to pick up, but they're not hard to tip over, particularly tall things like obelisks and sculptures. A couple of rowdy teenagers can easily tip upwards of 75 headstones in less than a half an hour. It's very easy to do a lot of damage very quickly. And so what can happen in a half an hour will take years and hundreds of thousands of dollars to remedy. And this is what's so scary about vandalism is, yes, water is a big problem. Yes, something suddenly like a tornado can be a big problem. But water takes time. Natural disasters are relatively rare. The amount of damage that vandals can do very quickly can be just permanently devastating to a cemetery. Vandalism can also take other forms. So things like graffiti with spray paint, things like dumping of materials, whether it be something like paint, whether it be other, you know, food materials, eggs. Eggs can be very bad because of the protein in them. They can stain things, even like a polished granite. Theft, huge issue where particularly bronze is very popular with people to sell for scrap metal. And again, you can have a sculpture that's worth half a million dollars that gets hacked apart and sold for $200 at a scrapyard. And that's often an irreplaceable and difficult to repair type of vandalism. Unfortunately, many of these cases go unprosecuted. Many of these cases go unsolved. And many of these cases aren't even seen. So in cemeteries that don't have regular security and maintenance, that don't have people there all the time, often this vandalism is continuous. It goes on and on and on. 
And it's interesting because when you look at cemeteries that are relatively well-maintained now, so again, I'll come back to Oakland here in Atlanta, reading articles about Oakland in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, it was bad. It was overgrown. Vandalism was rampant. That's when a lot of the statues that you see that are missing hands or missing heads lost them. And we have no idea what happened to them because it's not like they were being patrolled and maintained at the time. It wasn't until the early form of the Historic Oakland Foundation, which was founded in the late 70s, appeared that you started to have things like regular security, that you started to have maintenance. And that's not to say that even big cemeteries don't still have vandalism. They absolutely do. Luckily, they usually have the staff. They are usually well patrolled so that when those type of vandalism things occur, people find out about them quickly. But when you see cemeteries that have been neglected for decades, the question is, did somebody tip this tombstone over yesterday or did it happen 35 years ago? And the longer that it's on the ground, the longer that water collects on it, those acts of vandalism start to snowball. And preserving that monument just becomes more and more and more challenging. This goes closely hand in hand, and it's a good segue into poor caretaking and neglect. Now, I think we would all love to think that cemeteries are well-organized enough that they have long-term plans and they will be able to maintain them. It was really interesting. Um, there is a section in Kenneth Jackson's book, which is called Silent Cities, where Silent City is an interesting book. It's short. It's probably only maybe 60 pages. Um, it's a big glossy with photographs. But he has a section called Neglected Cemeteries. And he says, quote, whenever a cemetery runs out of land for burial, its revenues diminish drastically. We just talked about that. At the same time, expenses continue. Money is needed for lawn care and new plantings, as well as trained personnel to discourage thieves and vandals and restore toppled monuments. If a cemetery does not have a perpetual care fund, its income dries up and it cannot maintain the ground. Unused cemeteries left unguarded become garbage dumps or places where local teenagers have parties, race motorbikes, and vent their boredom and frustration by toppling monuments. A 14-year-old boy who damaged 73 monuments in Morristown, New Jersey, explained it was something to do. I feel like I'm just reiterating everything that we just talked about. This is my favorite part. Muggers, benefiting from the isolation of the ground, prey easily upon elderly people who continue to visit the cemetery. Vandals rob cars and snatch purses from mourners. Others prefer to steal from the dead and go so far as opening coffins, ghoulishly searching for gold fillings and valuables. Local organizations such as the Boy Scouts, the Fire Department, or a church may try to improve the appearance of a neglected cemetery by repairing fences and removing underbrush and garbage. In academic settings and elite institutions, preservationists may speak of restoring funerary monuments that have historical or aesthetic value. And the more ambitious among them might like to restore entire cemeteries. But without continued attention, these efforts do not last long. And within a few years, the burial ground retains its derelict look. A few well-known cemeteries continue to attract the general public. They organize photography contests and use the monuments and grounds as subject matter to conduct gardening classes that include practical demonstrations of tree pruning and flower planting. So it's very interesting because this is a little bit cynical. Now, I will say that this book is slightly outdated. Um, if you look at the date for publication, let's look, 1989. So we're, we, are, we are more than 30 years old at this point, this book. But 
these stories are familiar and they are very quite really quite practical. I will say the 1980s, the preservation movement was still pretty young. And this idea of restoring whole cemeteries, well, guess what? It does happen. But I tend to agree. People ask me all the time, there's a neglected cemetery near me. What should I do? And I always tell them the first thing you should do is make a plan and make a plan for long-term maintenance. Because just picking up a rake and, you know, trying to clean things up, if you don't have a long-term maintenance plan, who is going to mow the grass? Who is going to take care of it? All that effort's going to be for naught. You really need to make a long-term plan. And if you are looking to adopt a cemetery, you need to be prepared to make a commitment to it. Now, with this little snippet of joy comes an example from the Cemetery News Notes in the publication American Cemetery from July of 1982 that says, quote, The board of directors of the Oak Hill Cemetery Association has voted to abandon the 118-year-old Oak Hill Cemetery in Atchison, Kansas. They are expected to file dissolution papers. The board is said to have only about $90 in its bank account. The cemetery still active is averaging 32 burials a year. Now, as we are talking about an article that was written 40 years ago, I decided to do a little research and see how Oak Hill Cemetery in Atchison, Kansas was doing today. So Oak Hill Cemetery, for reference, was founded in 1865. As I said, um, they, they dissolved the private cemetery board. So it was a private cemetery in Atchison, Kansas. It was dissolved. And by state law, let's see what happened to it. Because surprise, surprise, this is something that is still in the news today. So on February 8th, 2020... This article was written. Dr. Brendan Asher knows a thing or two about forgotten antiquity. The Atchison native who graduated from Mar Hill Mount Academy in 2002 went on to devote more than 12 years of study to obtain a PhD in archaeology and today works in Portales, New Mexico as director of the Blackwater Draw National Historic Landmark. He identifies and exhibits specimens in excess of 10,000 years old that represent the Paleo-American civilization that existed in New Mexico. Above all else, the field of Asher's work focuses on the preservation of the past. No matter what the living do, his point of view, artifacts who came from before must be kept as they are. Most of all, gravestones and other burial markers must be left in place. So when he learned about the city of Atkinson's new policy regarding the removal of decrepit and toppled gravestones at the municipal burial site Oak Hill Cemetery, he was very concerned. The policy, authorized by Ordinance Number 6625, has been enacted on a 4-0 to City Commission vote. Commission members J.D. Farris, Abby Bartlett, Mayor Sean Rizza, and Vice Mayor Alan Revis voted in favor. Commissioner Lisa Moody didn't attend the meeting amid personal business conflicts on January 21st. In addition to setting out how, when, and for what reason stones can be removed, the policy makes various changes to Oak Hill's grave decoration policy. Asher said he focuses on the concern of removal. If you remove a gravestone, you're taking away a name, taking away their history. That robs not only future current scholars of history and genealogy, but also future generations that may want to research their ancestors. One of the best ways to do that is to go out there, read the stones themselves, and if the stones are gone, you can't do that. According to a city government written statement out Friday afternoon, the policy is currently under review in response to public feedback. 
It is important to note that the headstones in question average more than 100 years of age, and the city of Atchison inherited Oak Hill Cemetery by state statute in 1982, after the privately held cemetery board disbanded, the statement goes. As municipal, as municipal public works director Clinton Mc, McNemis, city staff portfolio includes Oak Hill. At the Atchison governing body meeting on January 21st, before the city commission, McNamee said that over the last few years, he has identified more than 140 gravestones in need of maintenance and 47 stones, which are in urgent need of current action. Because they pose either a serious threat or hazard, were already toppled over and impeding maintenance efforts. We put out a bid to get those reset, knowing our ordinance puts the responsibility of maintenance on the grave owners or their heirs. We got one bid back. It was close to a six-figure number. We felt it was too much and was not feasible for us. Following that effort, plans came into being to develop a new municipal policy for dealing with the stones identified as in urgent need of action. Ultimately, staff determined it is best to remove a hazardous or obstructive gravestone so that any safety concern is resolved and maintenance is no longer impeded. The stones are to be set aside for a period of three years, during which time McNemi and the staff will try to get in touch with any affected living family members. The city government isn't alone in regarding gravestones to be a potential safety hazard. People are occasionally harmed when gravestones topple over at the wrong moment. The most prominent U.S. example is the recent, in the recent past is the death of 74-year-old Troop, a Pennsylvania man, on March 28, 2015. Um, Troop, Pennsylvania, excuse me, 74-year-old in Troop, Pennsylvania, on March 28, 2015. According to ABC Channel 16 of Scranton, Pennsylvania, Stephen Wojtak had been visiting the grave of his mother-in-law with his wife when he knelt down to attach a decoration to the stone. It fell off its base, killing him instantly. An eight-year-old boy suffered a similar fate on November 21, 2017 in Glasgow, Scotland. The city has permanently cited its desire to prevent such incidents in implementing the new policy, while saying that it will be mindful of the need to inform infected families as soon as possible. If no one is successfully contacted after three years or if the survivors take no action to impair or replace the stone, staff will be authorized to dispose of it as they see fit. What's happening now is that under the ordinance, any stone that is removed from its place at Oak Hill will be marked with a metal identification plaque. McNemi explained that if someone were to venture into Oak Hill and find a stone had been removed, the staff will look up the metal plaque information and use that to identify who is buried there and what has happened to the stone. However, as some of the stones can't be read at all, Gaps in the information already exist. Of the 140-some stones that we looked at, the average age based on the date of death was 1918, so about 100 years old is correct, McNamee said. It's just one of those things where you've got granite stones that will last for hundreds of years on top of masonry that's not designed to do that. The footings were only built to last for several decades. When you put this on a hill, gravity takes over. Asher said even though he thinks the ordinate leaves gravestone maintenance in the hands of survivors, the cemetery's owner has an ethical obligation to ensure that the gravestones aren't removed from the site under any circumstances. It should never have gotten to that stage, he said. If the damage to these stones is entirely irreversible and you can't preserve these, you can't restore them, the situation now requires removal. That is a consequence of the lack of attention and a lack of respect and care that should have been applied to these monuments all along. In its statement, the city said it will attempt to find an amicable solution to the maintenance problem. It is not the intention of city leaders to spend public taxpayer dollars on the repair of privately owned headstones. Even so, city commissioners and staff will seek to work with the concerned parties. 
Staff are currently researching an alternative solution and would welcome any public suggestions. The public response was limited. In addition to the three members of the public who spoke in opposition to Ordinance Number 6625 at the most recent meeting on February 3rd, the Atchison governing body heard from one concerned citizen during a public forum for non-agenda items. Aside from that, the number of people who appeared to be willing to speak out about their views on the cemetery is limited. There's been much social media chatter, but the seats open for members in front of the public on February 3rd were empty. Most of the crowd that did attend opted to leave after the one person who spoke on the cemetery matter during the public forum of that government meeting occurred. Kind of a long article, so I apologize for that, but I thought it was worth reading because it addresses both what I just talked about as well as the issue of legal restrictions and orphaned lots. Now, just like we like to think that cemeteries are eternal, we like to think that there will always be descendants there to take care of them. Now, if you go back to the episode that I did on the New Haven Burial Ground, the one of the reasons that James Hillhouse actually originally suggested it was that he already had concerns about the remains of his family members. He wanted to ensure that there was a governing body that would take care of them long term, which was perhaps a little bit overly ambitious. If anything, this proves that that's a problem. So I got really excited when I first started researching this. I was like, the city took it over. They're doing a great job. It's technically still active. But, and the thing is, you have to remember, cemeteries, whether public or private, when you choose to put a headstone on your lot, that is a choice you make. You do not have to mark it. And so whatever you opt put on a grave, you become responsible for it. And unfortunately, a lot of the maintenance problems come from the fact that either people don't realize that they're agreeing to that, they don't read the fine print, or that there simply is no one to take care of it. When the family dies off, when the family moves away, who becomes responsible? Now, as devil's advocate and a person who has worked for the government, I am often very skeptical about these promises. We will do our best to try to contact descendants. Well, they're cities, and cities often don't have money. So when they are required to do legal advertisement, I can guarantee you here in Atlanta, if the government is advertising, zero of them are doing it in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Now, granted, aside from the fact that very few people read print media every day, let alone the legal ads. Nobody is paying the advertising rates that the AJC charges. They are going to advertise in the Fulton County Reporter. They are going to advertise in some little backwoods newspaper that nobody is ever going to read or see. And that's not me calling them crooks. That's me being practical. Now, I think that the statutes should open up the type of advertising to different things. Advertise on Nextdoor. Advertise on social media. Advertise through other venues, even if it's not required of you, because that is the way that people get the majority of their information today. If the city has a Twitter account, you should be tweeting about it. If the city has a Facebook or an Instagram, they should be using that. Because just saying we're going to try to find descendants, we're going to legally advertise the way that we are required, quite frankly, isn't it. 
Now, as disturbing as I think it is that only three people came out to speak about this. Now, granted, I don't know how happening Atchison, Kansas is on the average Wednesday night, say, when this board meeting probably was. But I think that you also have to take into account that there may be people who live in Sacramento, California, that have ancestors who lived in Atchison, who may strike up a genealogy attempt years from now, and they come back and they find that all of the headstones for their loved ones have been lost. And certainly, lost cemeteries are something that needs to be talked about, because there are numerous ones across the country where exactly this happened. They moved the bodies, but the headstones were expensive to move. And so what they did was they sold them for scrap. So if you go to San Francisco, you can see curbs and gutters that are made out of old headstones. You can see seawalls that are made out of old headstones. They form the base of the Betsy Ross Bridge in Philadelphia because headstones are expensive to maintain and to move. So this is not a new idea. And I bring this up because it's one of the things to take into account when you are talking about this. And it's often the reason that people will set up separate separate perpetual care funds if they have an elaborate monument. And cemeteries often, if you build a mausoleum or something like that, will require you to put additional money into escrow to help pay for its long-term maintenance. And you can see this. If you go into certain cemeteries, so the one that comes to mind is Cave Hill Cemetery in Louisville, very much has this. If you go to Colonel Sanders' grave, yes, 11 herbs and spices, finger-licking good Colonel Sanders, you will see that there is an additional perpetual care fund for his lot because they know it's going to get a lot of tourists and a lot of traffic and it's elaborate and it has plantings and it has a very elaborate marble monument. Those type of monuments, you pay more just to put them up because they know in the long run they will require more maintenance. Now, on top of that, even if things are a threat to public health and safety, generally it takes a long time before a cemetery can act. It's usually a couple of generations before the city can step in, unless, again, it's an act of God and they have to because a tree is leaning on it or something like that. I spoke with Sam Beatler from Savannah. I believe their rule is something like 70 to 75 years before they could do anything on a lot. There has to be no action. So no active participation, no transfer of deeds, nobody making inquiries, and no burials for at least 70 years. It's either 70 or 75, I can't remember. That's a long time. So if you have a younger cemetery where you already have problems with neglect, that's going to definitely add into this. Okay, two more. The next one I want to talk about is poor repairs. Now, this is something that can happen both in maintained cemeteries and unmaintained cemeteries. So say you are a family member and you're relative's headstone cracked 50 years ago. And so dad got a bag of quickcrete down at the hardware store and he came out and he slapped grandma's gravestone back together. And now, 40 years later, you're starting to notice that it has more cracks and it's deteriorating more. Ask any material preservationist what they spend the majority of their time doing and it is undoing older bad repairs. And this is where, as not being a material preservationist, I really struggle because I don't have a definitive answer for the best way to handle this. I would love to say that there's a magic bullet and that even the materials that we are using today, we know that in the long run, 
things like epoxies and D2 are never going to damage stones. But the fact is, we honestly don't know. It's a bit of a shot in the dark. Are there best practices? Are there things that we know definitively, like you shouldn't use bleach? But the problem is, is that we try to chemically test these things in labs, but we don't know long-term when exposed to certain weather, long-term when exposed to atmospheric conditions, could these things have a negative impact? This is why the general rule of thumb with preservation is do no harm. So think about the material that you're using. If you are using, say, a quick setting concrete, it's great for setting up your mailbox because you want your mailbox to sit there for a long time and you don't want anything to happen to it. But also, odds are your mailbox post, a $25 wooden post from the Home Depot, is a heck of a lot different than a very valuable piece of marble. And it also has a very different consistency. You're not going to mind replacing that post in 10 years if it starts to deteriorate raw. Because guess what? It's just a wooden post. It's not grandma's headstone. And so concrete, which cracks and damages stones because of expansion and contraction, is a terrible idea. Monuments are at their core fine art. They're different types of materials than you use around your house. So the things that you use to caulk your bathtub, to repair your driveway, those type of things really shouldn't be used on it any more than you would suggest using caulk that you use for your bathtub on a sculpture in a museum. You wouldn't do the same thing because the materials are far more similar to fine art in a museum than they are to say a ceramic bathtub. And that's it. I've also seen people say that like, if it looks cheap, it probably is another good rule of thumb. But yes, a lot of times one of the biggest preservation challenges is not just fixing things that get broken, but fixing things that were fixed badly in the past. Now, the last one, <laughs> I wish I could say that there was an easy fix for this one too, but that is development. The threat to cemeteries of development. And I would say that this one goes hand in hand with law because the fact is that there are 50 states in the United States and no two of them have the same cemetery laws. Most states do not have a consistent statewide cemetery law. It is often left to either counties or municipalities. And you can have two cities, two towns, two counties that are right next to each other that have completely different cemetery laws. And I will often have people inquire about cemetery laws in Georgia, which in Georgia we do have statewide laws, but there are still different policies about how that is enforced from town to town. And it makes things incredibly confusing. Now, I can say that, for example, there are certain states that are really doing really bad when I Googled cemeteries threatened by development. The first five stories were all about Maryland. Interestingly enough, Maryland has an office for cemetery oversight that was established in 1997, but the office for cemetery oversight only deals with active cemeteries. It does not deal with abandoned, family, or non-operational cemeteries. Oh, which guess what? Those are the three types of cemeteries that are most at risk from development. So you have the overwhelming majority of cemeteries. How often are large, active, privately owned cemeteries threatened by development? Not very. It's the small family cemeteries where the family is no longer around. It's the neglected or abandoned cemeteries that nobody quite knows who owns it or who takes care of it. Those are the ones that become easy pickings for developers. 
Now, while I would like to say that in a perfect world, we would never move cemeteries, it certainly happens all the time. I don't think that we should make it easy for developers to move them. I think that we should make them work as hard as they possibly can to find descendants. And if the descendants are okay with it, while I don't love the idea and while I think that context matters for cemeteries, I can at least understand it because I think it should be the family's choice. I don't think that we should make it easy for developers to move things at a whim. I think that we should force them to go through the same process that the federal government has to. The Section 106 and environmental controls of NEPA and things like that. I think that they should be held to the same standards. Unfortunately, money often talks. But development is a huge preservation challenge because often development, even if it does not remove cemeteries, it can block access to them, it can limit access to them, and it can actually lead them to be further neglected by cutting them off from main roads, from public right-of-way, from easy access for cemeteries, uh, for cemetery families. And often what I see is that cemeteries that are in areas that are being developed actually decline faster than if they were left alone, which is a frightening prospect. Again, I don't necessarily have all the answers to this. This is more about identifying the biggest risks and being aware. Because if you are interested in cemetery preservation or just in cemeteries in general and understanding why things get worse, this gives you a little bit of a guideline for that. Now, I guarantee that with these top 10 preservation challenges, we will be talking about them more extensively in future episodes. But I think this gives you a really good general overview. It gives you some good examples to think about. And if you are working at preserving a cemetery, if you are working in this field, I think it gives you an idea about some of the things if you are looking to make a long-term plan that you have to prepare for, that you have to consider. You know, maybe before you start doing preservation, you cough up a little bit of money and you get an arborist out there to assess your trees. Because you look at it and you say, hey, it looks like we've got a lot of dead and dying trees. These could cost us a lot of money 10 years from now. It's not as sexy as doing a great cleanup. It's not as productive as getting out there and resetting headstones. But in the long run, it could save you a lot of money. It could be a big part of your preservation program. And it's certainly something to think about. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, please would love a great rating. Wherever you rate and review podcasts, whether you get your podcast from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, most platforms do now have an ability to rate and review. It helps make me much more searchable for people who are looking for good cemetery content. And I would really appreciate it if you could take the extra five minutes to do that. Let me know what you're thinking, what you like. All the positive feedback is appreciated. Also, follow along on social media, Tomb of the View podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. Share lots of fun stuff through there. Lots of pictures of the things that I talk about. Helps give you a little bit of a visual aid because I know podcasting can sometimes be infuriating because you don't have that visual aid. Going to be continuing with the re-recording of the original episodes. We're at 10, which means that we're more than halfway there right now. Very exciting. Good sense of accomplishment for 10 episodes inside of a month. <laughs> Those and new episodes will continue. But for now, everyone stay safe. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View.